Welcome to the Jungets Games podcast, where in today's episode, you'll be hearing the audio from a recent impressions vlog. In that video, I discussed Anno 1800, Hallertau, as well as Mercado de Lisboa. And if you'd like to listen to just parts of this podcast, then go to the description of it in order to find timestamps to the specific games you want to hear about. At this point, I do want to mention that the only reason this podcast is being made is because of the direct support coming in through the Patreon campaign for the channel. Now, if you enjoy listening to my vlogs in podcast form instead of watching them, then I do hope you would consider supporting the Patreon campaign, and you can learn more about that by going to patreon.com slash Games. The final thing I'd like to ask is that if you have any questions or comments about anything I say today, that you leave those as comments on the YouTube page for the vlog, and you can find a link to that in the description of this podcast. All right, let's now start talking about games, and the first of these is Anno 1800. Now, this is a brand new release from Cosmos. Currently, it's just in a German version. There's an English version coming out next year, but fortunately, the German version is essentially language independent. Uh, now, this one is designed by Martin Wallace of um, many board game fame. Uh, in particular, Brass is the one that sticks out to me the most. And um, I have been pretty interested in playing this one for a while. Um, the uh, basic idea of it seemed to be uh, supply chains, like I make some uh, buildings and then my opponents can use my buildings, which helps me out. And then I can use their buildings as we make more and more complicated stuff. Um, that seemed pretty neat. And then I was able to watch part of a playthrough that came up on the JPlay YouTube channel. Um, I highly recommend that YouTube channel, by the way. I've been watching him since before I started this channel. Uh, but anyway, it really looked exciting. Like watching the game being played, it looked like everything I wanted in a Euro game. So I read the rules and then I uh, was able to get two and a half games of this played. Now, I'm going to talk about my impressions in just a little bit. I want to talk about the mechanics of this game first. So essentially, each player has a board in front of them with a bunch of little square buildings, and you have some cubes in different colors. Now, these cubes are technically your population, and when it's your turn, you just take a single action, and the main thing that you are doing is utilizing your population cubes to get various goods in order to do the action that you want. So for instance, on your very first turn, maybe you say, I want to be able to make soap, but I can't yet. So for my entire turn, I'm going to take a soap token from the middle of the board, put it into my area, and then I have to pay for that. Well, the soap costs pigs and it costs coal. Well, fortunately, I can look at my board that I already have and there's a coal area and it says I need red population, which is I think craftsmen, to activate that to give me a coal. They don't actually take a token for the coal, it just exists, you just know that there is a coal. And then I would send a farmer over to the pig spot on my board. Now I have a coal and a pig made up in the ether and then I can consume them to make this soap building. It's now flipped over on my board and for the rest of the game, I can now send a blue person over to there, which is I think a factory worker, to make soap. So that was my whole turn. It was really simple, I just utilized my population. It's easy to think of these cubes as workers, but this isn't a worker placement game. So thinking of them as an action population potential is, is significantly better. So I do that, and then the next person goes, and let's say they have a card in their hand that they want to play out, and it requires soap. Well, they could go through all that effort to make their own soap factory if they want to, or they could just use my soap factory. Now, the way they do that is they spend these trade tokens that they have, and you get them from ships, and the uh, number of tokens that you spend is going to go up as you trade for more expensive stuff. Fortunately, soap is very cheap, so they can trade for that for just a single trade token, and then I magically give them an ether 
pure soap in the air, and they can use that to play their card. And then as a benefit for me, I just gain a gold from the supply. Uh, gold is definitely a good thing to have. Every three gold that you have at the end of the game is worth a point. So they got the soap they needed. I got a third of a point. And there are other ways to use gold, which I'll talk about soon. So they have now played their card out, and that card is going to give them some sort of bonus. It might um, give them some upgrades. It might also let them discard cards from their hand, or it might give them new population cubes that then go down onto their board. Now, this is where the game gets kind of strange for a Euro game, because so far everything seems pretty, you know, elegant, streamlined, I think. Now, every single population cube that you have is effectively having its demand represented by a card in your hand. At the start of the game, you have four green, three blue, and two red population on your board, and you start with four of the green and slash blue type cards, plus three of the green slash blue type cards, because green and blue together, four and three is seven, so you have seven of those cards, plus two of the red, purple, teal type cards, which are the more advanced ones. So at the start of the game, you have an equal number of cards in your hand to the number of population cubes that you have in front of you. Well, in that example, my uh, opponent played a card out which gave them um, another uh, cube. Maybe they got two more blue cubes. Well, they take the cubes from the supply and they put them onto their board where they can now use them for the rest of the game, and they have to draw two more cards, one card each representing the relative demand, I think, that that population needs. Now, this is kooky because the only way this game ends is as soon as any one player has played all of the cards in their hand. So what that means is, at the start of the game, you have nine cards in your hand, and it takes a full turn to play a card. And as you play through the game, you're going to be playing cards, and uh, some of those will give you more cubes, which let you do more stuff, but then you take more cards, which is going to delay you actually ending the game. Uh, there are some other things going on where you can spend exploration tokens from your ships in order to explore uh, the old world and the new world, and the old world spots give you more locations that you can build on and a nice bonus, while the new world area gives you uh, different things you can trade for from the new world, like cotton or rubber or tobacco, but you take three new world cards, which go into your hand, and once again, you cannot end the game until you've played all of the cards in your hand. Uh, now, there are other ways to get cubes. You can just spend an action to make up to three cubes, which costs various resources, which you spend cubes to make more cubes, and then you, of course, draw some more cards. So what this means is the overall pacing of this game is you are trying to play these cards because they're good. All of the cards that you play are also worth victory points. In fact, they're going to be worth the vast majority of the points that you have at the end of the game. But by playing stuff out, you are invariably going to be drawing some more cards. So there's this um, this feeling of like trying to play cards and almost like getting more cards than the cards that you were playing, especially as you were going through the first two thirds or so of the game. Uh, now, the reason you actually want more cubes is because you can spend an entire turn doing a Stadtfest, which is, I think, German for... Uh, a city festival or something like that, but we've been saying Stadtfest because we have a German version that we're playing, um, where you return all of your cubes back to the supply so you can use them again to your own supply. And you return all of your trade tokens and your exploration tokens back to your ships. So I said that we're spending trade tokens to trade with our opponents. Well, they're not going away. You just don't have them until you spend an entire turn to do a full city reset. So the more cubes that you have, that means you can go longer without spending your entire turn effectively doing nothing. So having more cubes is certainly a good thing, although doing a Stodfest action is also great because it gets you those trade act tokens back so that you can spend them to trade for other people's stuff again. Now, um, <laughs> what this means is there is a very strange feeling in this game where Technically, this game could go on for like six or seven hours, uh, and that's because if people are just playing cards, getting cubes, which gives them more cards to play cards, to get cubes, to give them more cards, to go to the new world, to get some more cards, 
it's very possible that you just have way too many cards to actually play out in a reasonable period of time. Now, fortunately, the player who ends the game, the player who puts the last card down, is going to get seven victory points as a bonus, and um, from my two full games, I could say the winning scores were usually around 120, so seven points is definitely significant. And what this means is there's going to be a group think uh, uh, situation that happens here. Now, in the two games that I have played, I have been the one that ended the game, and the reason I did that is because A, I didn't want the game to go on forever, and B, because I wanted those seven extra points, and while you're playing through this game, you have all these cards in your hand, and odds are very good for the vast majority of the game, you will have cards in your hand that you cannot play. They require a specific um, resource that does not exist yet. Uh, you have not built it yet, and maybe someone else hasn't. Maybe you can't build it because it requires access to a specific new world good that you do not have, and I'm not going to go into the specifics of why you might not have it, but there are definitely situations where near the end of the game, suddenly someone builds something across the table for me and you say, okay, that's it. That was the last thing that I needed. Now, every card that I have in my hand can be played. And in my opinion, that's the moment you have to slam on the gas pedal and just start playing cards as quickly as you can. Again, one per turn in order to try and run the clock out. The reason for that is because every card you play is points and in that moment, there is a reasonable uh, chance that your opponents do not have everything that they need in play to actually get all of their cards out. So if you race them out, you should hypothetically be able to get more points than them. Uh, but if no person does that, if everyone is just enjoying the city building and playing cards to get things, to make more things, to get play cards to get more things, um, this game could easily go, again, like hours and hours longer than it should. I've seen reports on BoardGameGeek of people playing like five or so hour games of this. Now, in my experience, I have played a full three-player game and a full four-player game. The three-player game was, uh, I think, three hours, pretty much on the dot. And the four-player game, uh, that one took, I think it was three hours as well. So we actually got it um, the same uh, uh, amount of time, but with an entire another player. And the scores were about the same, which leads me to think that we did about the same amount of things. I think we were just getting a little bit more comfortable. In that four-player game, actually, three of us were familiar with it already because I did say I've played this game uh, two and a half times, and the very first time we played, we just played for about an hour and a half. Um, we only had an hour and a half available, but I was so excited to play the game that we decided to just play until we hit like three o'clock or whatever it was because one of us had to leave, and um, that left us about halfway through the game, but all of us were kind of experienced with it already. So I've talked about the mechanics of this game quite a bit, and now I want to talk about the reality of this game for me. And the reality is, after I played half a game, I was borderline obsessed with this game. Like, I could not stop thinking about it, especially stopping halfway through a game. And it was another couple days until I got to play it again at a full three-player game. I then played that three-player game, and at the end of that game, I was absolutely smitten with this game. I, I loved it. It was so much fun, and all of us really enjoyed it. Um, a couple days later, we sat down and played the full four-player game, and I, again, had a great time. And it's worth noting, in both of those games, I ended the game, and in both of those games, I won by a pretty sizable amount. So take my opinion with a grain of salt. I do have some winner's bias going along here, but... I will say that after that four-player game, I'm starting to have concerns about the game overall. Um, the heart of this game, the mechanical heart, um, thrills me to no end. Uh, I have played so many Euro games lately, and the, the, the current theme for board, a Euro game design is just more complexity, more modules, more interconnectedness, more fiddly side rules, more bonus tokens. Uh, it, it just kind of drives me crazy to a certain extent, especially being the person who usually teaches games. And then Anno 1800 walks in, and this is a game that you can reasonably teach in 30 minutes. Hypothetically, I feel like you could teach this game in 20 minutes to people who are familiar with modern board gaming. Everything is just so elegant. It's so streamlined. You just 
you want to build that thing, you just pay the resources and you pay the resources with the cubes and there's no asterisks or anything like that. You just do the thing and somebody else needs that thing and you have the thing. They spend a uh, trade token and you get a gold. Congratulations, you get something, they get something and the game just keeps going on and on. So I love how simple it is, but at the same time, there's some weird things going on. There are cards in this uh, game you draw randomly from the top of the deck where card A and card B will have the exact same result, but card A has significantly easier resources to acquire than card B. Well, that seems a little bit weird. Like, isn't card A just better because you can play it earlier? Uh, there are also situations where card A and card B have effectively the same cost on the top, but card B's result just feels significantly better than card A's. Now, I've only played the game two and a half times, so it's you know, a little silly to stand up on a mountain and say, this game is imbalanced, but there are some parts that really do feel like genuinely intentionally unbalanced, which bugs me because I don't like intentional uh, imbalance in games. Uh, for instance, when you get new uh, old world uh, tiles you put next to your board, so that gives you more ocean space for ships and more uh, factory building spaces, you always get a bonus as well. It's random, and I like random bonuses as long as they're somewhat balanced. But in this game, one of the things that you can put out there will give you two of the blue workers, which means you, of course, have to draw two of the blue-green cards. And another one gives you two of the green workers, which means you draw two of the blue-green cards. Well. I can tell you right now, blue workers are just better than green workers. This game, as you're playing through the game, you're essentially working your way out of the green workers. It's likely if you don't upgrade your green workers into better workers, then you will end up just not using them for the last third of the game or so. So you don't need those. And so it seems like a bummer moment when you see an opponent draw something which gives them like an exploration ship, which is perfect for the thing they needed. And then you draw two green uh, workers and you're like, great, two workers I probably won't even use that come along with two more cards that are now glutting up my hand. And I'm trying to play these cards so that I can try to trigger the end of the game to get that bonus. So that feels a little bit weird. And then the final thing, the real thing that's that's kind of sticking in my side with this game is the way the trading works. Now, as I said, I, I on a high level, I love this. You spend trade tokens in order to trade to get stuff from your opponents. I love how um, uh, yeah, win-win that is. Like, they're happy, you're happy, cool. The problem is that you spend more trade tokens for the more expensive stuff, but no matter what, you always just give that person one gold from the main supply. So what that means is there are situations near the end of the game where someone almost feels disincentivized to spend their turn and a lot of, you know, uh, expensive resources and infrastructure to build something big like the steam car. Like, so that's one of the harder things to construct. You make a factory that makes steam cars. So let's say I, you know, spend a couple turns getting the infrastructure to build that down because I have a card in my hand that wants the steam car. And then suddenly, like, two people around the table, like, pump their fists, like, oh, Thank goodness, some, finally, someone made a steam car. And on their turn, they trade with you, you get a gold, which is a third of a point, and they play a card that's worth eight points to them. And the next person gives you a gold, which is worth a third of a point, and they play a card that's worth eight victory points to them. That's a feels-bad moment for me, because I wanted that steam car, and I had to build a steam engine to make it happen. Or maybe somebody else had a steam engine, and I used theirs. But I spent effort to try and get that thing down, and it almost seems like I made, like, two-thirds of a point more than my opponents because they both traded with me once. 
that just feels so strange. Like, why isn't it the number of trade tokens that you spend equals the number of gold that that person gets? Um, that uh, uh, Steam car, for example, costs four trade tokens, uh, whereas the soap, again, costs just one trade token. So I feel like if somebody spends four trade tokens on their area to use my Steam car factory, I should get four gold. That's one and a third point, which still honestly does not feel that great in comparison to the eight points with the card that they were able to just put down, but at least it feels like it would be better. This is a part of the game where the more I think about it, the more issues I have with this. And again, I've only played two and a half times, so I don't want to stand here and say, this game is clearly broken, but the uh, groupthink situations that we've had has kind of stalled the game out. There are definitely situations where <laughs> I've, I've been sitting here with my cards and I look across at an opponent and I can't take it anymore. I'm just like, will you please build your cigar factory? You've had tobacco all game long and you just, you, I have a card in my hand that needs a cigar and you just so desperately want them to do it. And they look back at me and they're like, oh, I didn't draw a card that needs a uh, cigar. So why would I do that? That's going to help you more than it helps me. And that just puts me in a really rough situation where now I need to maybe try to spend turns to explore the new world more, to maybe find tobacco. It's random. And every time you explore the new world, you draw three more cards, which makes it harder to actually end the game. So there are these really frustrating moments in the end of the game where it seems like people are just not incentivized enough to build the expensive stuff uh, to a certain extent where there's almost a groupthink situation of a bit of a stalemate. Um, now, in the games that I played, again, like three or so hours at the three and four player count with people getting more experience. So it's not like the game dragged on forever, but I don't understand why A, the trade token thing works the way I just said, or B, why don't these tiles actually give you victory points? Now, there are five mission cards that you draw randomly at the start of the game that will give you conditional endgame victory points as well as potential bonus actions you can take in the game. And some of them do give you points for having a building. Like one of them says, get, I think, six points if you have a penny farthing building and a steam car building and a gramophone building, or uh, six points for each of them. So you're incentivized to build those specific ones in the game where that card comes out. But when that card does not come out, then the incentive to build the steam engine is a lot less. I don't understand why the tiles themselves don't come with points on them already. Uh, it could be an increasing amount of points. Also, it's worth noting, there are two of each factory type, no matter what the player count is. So you could have a situation where the first one bought is going to be worth twice as many points as the second one that's bought. Uh, you could also change the rules around and house rule it so that when somebody uses your factory, you also just generate victory points or maybe even more victory points. Now, I know that gold is a third of a point, and I do want to mention that the other reason you want gold is because as a free action, you can spend your gold to uh, pay your worker population, uh, and it's more gold depending on how more complicated the worker is, to refresh that one specific cube to then use them again and free up a spot. So having gold is good in that way as well. It just, something feels a little bit funky with the end of this game. And I feel like if everybody's super experienced with this game, these issues might just disappear perhaps because people are becoming much more focused on just trying to play their cards. And if they have a card that needs a steam car and they have the ability to make a steam car, well, they'll just make the steam car so they can play their card. And they're hoping their opponents don't also have cards in their hand that require a steam car. Now, oh, I've talked about this game a lot already, and there is genuinely one more thing that I want to mention, um, even though I'm talking about this really long, and that is the uh, most uh, prestigious of the population cubes, which is the investor. Now, this is a teal cube, and it is very difficult to get these made. Uh, you can upgrade cubes, which makes it a little bit better. You can upgrade from the purple, which upgrades from the blue, or you could just make them outright. But it's a lot of resources to make even one of these investors. And these investors are important because they are required to be used in order to make the most complicated factories. If you want to make a steam car factory or an artillery factory, you need an investor to actually make that happen, which thematically makes a lot of sense. My problem is that 
at least in my very tiny uh, uh, experience set of two full games, it takes so long and so much effort to get one of these investors that by the time you have an investor, the end game stuff, the cool shiny end game stuff, it's it's really hard to actually get much use out of those things, like maybe even just one use. Um, there is, uh, for example, uh, better ships that you can buy, and the best ships require these investors. And I've never seen the best ships made in two and a half games, or I guess two full games, because by the time you have an investor, those ships almost don't even matter anymore. You probably have an amazing fleet, and you'd rather not spend your turn building more ships. So it, there's many different aspects to this game, where the more I play it, the more I feel like was this designed in an echo chamber of people who understood how everything worked so well already that it got refined to be best with that certain playgroup? But then for people who are just kind of stumbling into this game, trying to figure it out and being like, ooh, cool shiny toys, it just doesn't quite mesh together. And if that's true, then I'm great. You know, I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt that it is balanced at, um, at expert level play. But at the moment, with beginner level play, it just doesn't seem like it. It just seems like more incentive needs to be made for buying those later game stuff. I feel like the cost to get the purple and the teal uh, population is a little bit too high. I wish that was lower so you could get to them earlier and better use them as the game went on. And I feel like just from a fundamental perspective, this game is so elegant and simple at its core. Why does it have to be three hours for three or four players? Uh, you know, why can't this have been designed for like a 90 to 120 minute play period? I feel like you could have just cut some things out, like, you know, made the card draw a little bit less, start people with off with maybe a little bit less cubes, or just, I feel like there are ways to develop this game that I don't know the specific answers to that could have made this a 90 to 120 minute game. And I'm telling you, if this was like a two hour game that did not have this funky stuff at the end, this would potentially be my favorite game ever. Like, I love the beating heart of this game. The mechanics are so simple, and the win-win of the trading is so amazing. So I am really frustrated that the more I play it, the more I'm seeing these weird clashes and issues, like gears that are just supposed to go together, and they're just kind of not for our playgroup. Now, again, this could be entirely playgroup dependent. Uh, for some people, maybe they won't have these issues at all, but I can tell you right now that there are uh, several forum threads on BoardGameGeek already talking about how the way this game ends is funky and strange and is just not uh, connecting well with a lot of different playgroups. Um, for me, you know, I've been pressing the gas to actually end these games in a reasonable amount of time. I feel like there are certain subsets of my friends, if I put them together to play this, uh, this game would go twice as long because none of them would want to end it because they would be enjoying building up their sandcastle so much and not thinking about, you know, trying to end the game and actually win the game overall. So, Okay, I should probably start talking about uh, Anno 1800. I will, I will wrap this up by saying that I purchased a copy of the game after I uh, played it uh, one and a half times, and I'm still happy about that because, man, this game is so cool. But at this point, I just find myself wishing that a Anno 1800 Norwegians expansion comes out. And I say that in quotes because uh, the Norwegians expansion uh, came out for A Feast for Odin, and it turned A Feast for Odin from an excellent game into one of the best games I've ever played. And I feel like Anno 1800 needs that because it is so close to being one of the best games that I've ever played. But it's not there, and that really frustrates me. And will it get that expansion? It seems unlikely, but for now, I have a copy that's heading my way in probably about a month or so, and I am looking forward to playing this one more for all of the potential faults that I'm seeing in it. Um, and uh, that's where I currently stand. I will play this game more. All of our friends, my friends, are intrigued to play it more, but I'm worried about its staying power because of the potential issues that I've already talked at great length about.
Okay, let's now move into the second game I'll be discussing today, and that is Hallertau. Now, this is another uh, medium to heavyweight brand new Euro game, this one coming out from famed designer Uwe Rosenberg. Now, Uwe Rosenberg has designed tons of games. I'm not going to rattle all of them off, but I will say that the last big box game that he has designed was A Feast for Odin, which is one of my favorite games ever. Since then, I think Uwe Rosenberg has uh, designed or at least had published many, like almost 10 um, lighter games. A lot of them are polyomino based. And now here comes Hallertau, which is the next big one. Now, in this game, thematically, you are farming in the, I guess, Hallertau region of I think Germany, <laughs> I haven't done my research too much here, but you are going to be uh, sowing and harvesting crops. And it seems like the crops are very beer oriented. You have hops, you have barley, you have rye, and you have flax, which I don't think has anything to do with beer, but uh, those are different things that you are harvesting. And uh, you are also going to be cultivating sheep and then getting milk from the sheep and you can slaughter them for meat and get hides. You're doing lots of stuff that Uwe Rosenberg games often have. And the central mechanic for this game is worker placement. Now, I'm going to start this off by saying I actually played this one on Tabletop Simulator with a private mod that I made. Uh, I have uh, purchased a copy of this game. I purchased it like three weeks ago, but it still hasn't arrived yet. Fortunately, I was able to gain access to scans of the game's components, and I spent about seven hours cutting this up in Photoshop and building a mod so that I could play with friends uh, before my copy actually arrives. And so I have done that. I played one game at four players. And before I talk about the impressions, let's cover the basic mechanics of this game. Now, in the middle of the table, there is a worker placement board, and it has 20 different locations on it. Now, in this game, workers are actually neutral. They're all a dark blue color cube. And in the um, action phase of the game, you are going to be sending your cubes, or I guess uh, the neutral cubes that you have, you send them out to the board to activate various actions. Now, every action on the board has three or two uh, rows on them, and the number of cubes that you have to spend is going to increase as you go up in those rows. That means the first person to activate a specific action will spend one cube to do that action, and the next time somebody does that, which could be that same person on their next turn, it's going to cost two cubes, and finally the third time will cost three cubes. Once the third row is full, then no one can do that action until those cubes are cleared up. Now, the uh, actions themselves are very straightforward. It might be get some sheep. It might also be something like gain a field or sow some crops. Now, those two things lead me to the other um, uh, central mechanical heart of this game, and that is the actual fields that you have in front of you. Now, this is a uh, long skinny board that has essentially five-ish rows, the bottom one doesn't really count, and a bunch of columns, and you're going to put a field down into a column, and the location on the row of that field is going to dictate how fertile that field is. So if you have the field in the three uh, row overall, that's a value three fertile field, and whenever you do a crop sowing action, you actually take one of your crops and you consume it, and you put it onto that field. So if you had two flax, then you now have one flax and one flax is on that field that's in the three row. Now, later on after the action phase, you are going to harvest all of your crops. And the way you do this is you simply take the crop from the field, you slide it sideways to the end of the row and you leave it there. So that means that one flax was planted into a value three field. And then when it harvested, it went over to the three spot. That, so that one flax now counts as three flax. So you just gained flax by obviously sowing it and then harvesting it. Now here's the catch. 
that field that you just harvested from will drop down. So in the next round, it will be in the value two row. So if you sow a crop into it, you're only going to get two out of it. Now, when you uh, actually, before you do the harvest phase, every single field that does not have any crops on it, so fields that were left fallow, will actually go up the next row. And in fact, you get a bonus bump of one of those fields if you like. So as long as at least one field is open, you will get a bonus bump, which is good. So what this means is, uh, mechanically, is you have an incentive to use a field and then maybe not use it in the next round. So it goes up to, so it becomes more fertile in the next round, maybe even a couple of bumps with that bonus. And then maybe you use it again in the next round. The problem is that this game is only six rounds long. So if you just, you know, use a field one round and then not, and then use it and then not, if you just do it half the time, is that really worth leaving your field empty for half of the game? Well, I don't know. I've only played this game once, but it's definitely an interesting decision to make. Now, the reason you are trying to do all these things, you're doing worker placement to be able to get fields and plant crops and then sow the crops and, uh, uh, and harvest the crops is because on the bottom of your player area, every player has like four different boards in front of them. You have this large community board and it has a big house on it with a window and a number shining through that window. That number is the amount of neutral workers that you get at the start of each round. And to the right of your house are five different craft buildings. Now, those buildings have various icons on them that represent the different different resources, and near the end of each round of the game, you are going to be spending the crops as well as the um, non-crop things like clay and meat and milk and that kind of thing to actually move those little craft houses over. And the amount of resources that you have to spend to move the craft house over is equal to the round number. So that means in round one, it's just one of any of the matching symbols in order to move that craft house over. But if it's the fourth round of the game, it's going to cost four resources for one move over of that craft house. So you are incentivized to try and move them earlier on in the game, but obviously you don't have much of an engine built to actually do that. Now, the reason you want to move these craft houses over is because once all five of them have been moved over, essentially clearing a column, your house is going to shift over, and now the number in the window of your house will go up uh, from six to seven. Now, it will keep going up until it maxes out at 12, and from that point on, it stays at 12, but you just get more and more victory points. So that's kind of the cycle of this game. You do worker placement to gain stuff and also the ability to sow stuff to then harvest stuff later, to then spend that stuff to move your craft houses over, which moves your house, which gives you more workers for the next round to then do all of that stuff again. Um, now, there are other things going on. And in particular, this game has a funky card playing mechanism where it's very simple. You are going to have cards in your hand and there are many different piles that you can drive, draw from. And card playing is a free action that you can do at literally any time. So that means it could be my opponent's turn and I could just play a card, even though it's their turn and they're doing something. Um, so playing cards as a completely free anytime action seemed a little bit funky, but it, it uh, worked out in reality. And for the most part, these cards require you to spend various stuff to gain a benefit or just have a threshold, like have eight milk. Okay, I have eight milk. I play the card, I get the benefit, but I don't have to spend that eight milk. Now, some of these cards actually give you income, which will give you bonuses at the start of every single round. So you obviously want to get those done earlier on in the game, but these cards will also give you a bit of a direction beyond just trying to make those craft houses, it gives you some direction for trying to get X number of this or a Y number of that to try and play these cards to get the benefits that are on the cards. Now, I guess the last thing I should say mechanically about the game is that you have tools that you can acquire. Now, in the worker placement phase, you can send these workers out to activate these spots, or you could remove a worker to gain a tool, and that is a permanent tool. You will have it for the rest of the game unless you decide to get rid of it or if it's the sixth round, which I won't talk about the specifics of the sixth round. Um, now, these tools are important because going back to moving your little craft houses over, there are all these pesky boulders 
on each of these different rows. And once a craft house runs into a boulder, it can't move anymore. You could spend a tool token to move the boulder over one space to then free a spot to then move your craft house over. Uh, once boulders kind of run into other boulders, you're gonna have to spend two tokens to move the both of the boulders over to get one move. And then this funny thing happens where <laughs> I was calling it the uh, boulder elves uh, near the end of uh, every single round, I guess the pretty much the last thing of each round, is you move every boulder so that they are two and four spaces away from the craft houses, respectively. So that means just spending a tool to move a boulder doesn't actually make sense. If you don't move the craft house over, the boulder's going to magically come back because the boulder elves come in. <laughs> the rulebook does not say anything about boulder elves, but that's just me being silly. Uh, but it's definitely... It's, it's funky. What it effectively means is the first bump of a craft house is free of tools in the round. The second bump costs one tool and the third, fourth, fifth, etc. bumps cost two tools each uh, every single round because of the magical moving boulders. So that's the basis for the game. And we got to play a four player game of this one. I think the rules teach took me probably around 40 to 45 minutes, but I think I could probably get that down to 30 minutes based off of my being inexperienced with the game. And then uh, we played the full four-player game, and when the dust settled, it was essentially two and a half hours long, which is not bad at all for what seems to be a medium to heavyweight Euro-style game with the full player count of four players. I was a little worried going in with four, but it actually flowed really well. Now, every single round of this game, there's six rounds total, every round has 10 steps, but eight out of those 10 steps are fully um, asynchronous. You can just do them without having to interact with anybody else. One of those steps is the action round where you're going in turn order, placing your workers. And another step is simultaneous where technically everybody's spending all their stuff to move all their buildings over. So what that means is downtime was really not bad in this game. Um, the only time it really crept up was in the middle of the worker placement phase, but even then it wasn't too bad. The main part where we were really crunching with our brains and spending our resources to move our crafting houses, um, that was all simultaneous. So that definitely helped things out. And there was this funny thing where it seemed like it took us uh, a full hour to play the first two out of six rounds, but then like an hour and a half to play the last four. Like we almost accelerated as the game went on. And I think that's because we just got more familiar with the flow of this game. There's definitely, it's a, it's a bit of a Rube Goldberg machine of mechanics kind of falling into each other. And once you see a couple paths of it, you're like, okay, I get it. And um, that lets it flow better and it takes a little bit less time. Even though near the end of the game, there can be an incredible amount of crunching to do. Now, in this game, I came dead last, <laughs> which wasn't great. I thought I was doing better than that. I didn't think I was going to win, but I didn't think I was going to come last. However, I will say that there are many different ways that you could play this game, and I saw several of those ways in this first play. Uh, so I have uh, a friend who decided they their goal for the game was to max their house out, to move their house all the way to the end so it couldn't move anymore because that reveals 70 points, seven zero points in that window, which is huge. So that was her goal for the game, essentially. And the last two rounds of the game, in particular, the final round was incredibly stressful for her because it was the sixth round of the game and every single bump costs six resources. I didn't mention it, but you actually get discounts later on in the game if you use multiple different types of resources. So it's not technically six resources for each bump. It could be five or even four resources if you're using two or three different resources for each of those craft bumps. So her brain was just spinning steam coming out of her ears, I, I expect. I mean, we were on Discord, but um, trying to figure out a way to make sure that she didn't get into the crafting phase and realize she was one flax shy of getting that 70 points because that would just feel awful. Fortunately, she pulled it off and she had, I think, 
two or three excess resources at the end, which is impressive considering I had like 23 excess resources, which is probably part of the reason I lost. But it was cool to see that. And she came in second place. Um, the person who came a close third place uh, got zero points for the house. About halfway through the game, they said, you know what? I'm being so slow. I didn't get tools to move these boulders. I'm just not going to worry about the house anymore at all. I'll stick with my eight, I think, or nine workers. And they just played cards like crazy. At the end of the game, they scored 69 points in just cards in front of them because a lot of the cards that you play give you victory points. So one person got 70 points from maxing their house out. Another person got zero points for their house, but got almost the same amount of points for the cards in front of them. And then they also got points for some other things and they came in third. The person who won, I think, threaded this needle the best. They got, I think, around 54 points for their house. They got quite a few from that. They also got a bunch of points for their houses, and they got um, a decent amount of points for playing a couple of cards that just give you a raw amount of points. And I think they genuinely did end up playing the game best, and that friend wins so often. So I wasn't surprised when that particular friend won. For me, I essentially sat in a room with a bunch of buttons, and I just kept pressing buttons to see what they did. And by the time I realized that wasn't turning into a cohesive strategy, you know, I guess it didn't put me in a position to win. But I still really enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed pressing all those buttons, and I'm actually interested to play the game next time to try and maybe maximize the house or go crazy on the income or or maybe go heavy on sheep. I haven't really mentioned sheep much at all, but they have a bit of a, a mechanism where they can kind of breed and they can make ongoing milk, and, and, and you could definitely get a lot of benefits out of having a lot of sheep in the game. And the last thing to say, last thing, I'm sure it's not the last thing I'm going to say, but the, the last thing for the moment that I'm going to say is the fact that in this game, every time you play, you have the same point deck and bonus card deck, but there are two other decks. One is a gateway deck and the other one is a farmer deck. And when you play, you can swap those out. There are actually four different gateway decks and four different farmer decks. Now, the gateway decks... Every card in those decks is a threshold card, so you don't have to spend anything for them. They just give you a goal to get to to play the card to get the bonus. And a lot of these cards that you play actually let you drop bonus cards, which you have to spend stuff or have a threshold to play out to gain income. So you can play cards to get more cards, if that makes sense. Now, there are four different gateway decks, beginner, expert, advanced, and then master level. And then on the farmer decks, instead of being uh, skill-oriented, they are focused on what kind of stuff you're going to need to do well with them. The first one that's recommended to play with is hops. So many of the cards in that deck uh, gave you benefits if you had a lot of hops. Not all of them. It seemed like maybe a quarter to a third of them were hop heavy. Uh, an another one we haven't played with is sheep heavy. Another one is field heavy, just having a lot of fields. And the last one is jewelry heavy. I haven't mentioned jewels just yet, but you can spend a jewelry token to auto build one level of a craft house no matter what round it is. So there's a lot of variety there. Uh, the next time I play the game, uh, we're certainly not going to use the beginner deck. Not that the beginner deck was bad, but I just want to try some more variety. And we'll definitely pick a different uh, one of those other decks. And what that means is, Combining these in different ways is going to give, I haven't done the math, but many, many, many different perturbations to add some variety from one play to the next so it doesn't feel super samey. Uh, now, at the end of the game, all of us really enjoyed it. Um, I think uh, maybe there was a nitpick here or there. Um, nothing's really sticking out in my brain beyond that one player who maxed out their house saying that was really hard and kind of stressful at the end. And the rest of us were like, well, I didn't max out my house and the last couple rounds were fine. <laughs> so if you want to go on house maxing, like you are definitely setting yourself up for some, some higher level math than the other players. But beyond that, we all really enjoyed it and we are all actively interested in playing this one more. Uh, I'm really happy that I have a, a copy coming my way and I'm curious to try this one out at different player counts. I haven't talked about the specifics, but the cubes, the worker placement cubes in the middle, they are uh, removed 
Every single round, or at least the top level of them are removed. All of them go in a four-player game, but less than all of them go in a three- or a two-player game. So I'm curious to try other player counts to see if it's maybe a little bit quicker. Not that two and a half hours for four players is particularly bad. And yeah, this just seems like a cool system. It uh, is a lighter teach than A Feast for Odin. At this point, I think I probably still prefer A Feast for Odin, but that is one of my favorite games with the Norwegian expansion. But I'm um, quite intrigued to see more plays of Hallertau. It was just very satisfying. Uh, I didn't really... Um, dig into the field mechanic all that much. The player who put out 69 or 8 points worth of cards had maxed their fields out. They had so many fields, they were just sowing so many crops and getting so many resources every round, whereas I had like three or four piddly little fields. So there's a lot of things that I haven't explored yet in this game that I am actively looking forward to explore. Um, but I do want to end this by saying that I also know other people who have played this game and they were a little bit less impressed. Um, as far as innovation is concerned, there's not a lot of it, in Hallertown, like there's not a lot that makes you go, wow, that's totally brand new. Realistically, the only thing that sticks out to me is the crop rotation mechanic. I think I haven't seen anything quite like that, and I really enjoyed that. But beyond that, you're doing worker placement, which is pretty straightforward. The craft houses and your, your community house moving might seem innovative at first, but realistically, it's just a means to spend the stuff that you are making from your fields. And, you know, when you move the house over, you just get more workers to do the worker placement a little bit more. So, I don't think this is one is necessarily going to light a fire under everyone. <laughs> I, I, I wonder if anyone's going to sit here, uh, play this game once and say, this is the best game I've ever played. But so far in my experience, the people that I played with played it and actively enjoyed it and really are looking forward to playing it again. Well, again, I know some people who played it and felt a little bit like, eh, about it because it didn't seem like, it seemed like they were doing very standard Euroi things with standard Euroi bits. And I don't necessarily agree with them, but it would not surprise me if many people also feel that way about Hallertau. So yeah, uh, my copy is in the mail. I don't know when it's actually going to be arriving. Uh, if it arrives in the next week or so, I will actually be doing a uh, tutorial for that one because it's tentatively winning the poll for November. Uh, I just have to have the actual copy to film it. So hopefully that one happens because I'm looking forward to digging into this one more, uh, not just with filming a tutorial, but also playing it with friends again. Well, we've now reached the third and final game I'll be talking about today, and that one is Mercado de Lisboa. Now, this is a design from uh, uh, Vitalo Cerda, and I think Julian uh, Pombo, I think. Uh, it's a combination design. And the uh, the idea of this game is it's essentially a mechanical spin-off of part of the board game Lisboa that was designed by uh, Vitalo Cerda. Uh, now, I think I covered Lisboa years and years ago. Uh, it's a, a game that has a bunch of wonderful ideas that did not quite connect and jive with me in the best way, but part of the game, my favorite part of the game, involved the city-building mechanic in Lisboa. And in uh, Mercado de Lisboa, they took that city-building mechanic out of Lisboa, and they made it shine in its own small game. Like, it's not, not a very large game overall. The rules are very simple to teach, and it's actually a quick game to play. I played a three-player game of it, and it took less than 30 minutes, probably about 25 or so minutes, although one of the three of us was very experienced with the game. Now, um, the reason I love this mechanic is because essentially the way it works in both Mercado de Lisboa as well as the big game Lisboa is that you have a grid and you are going to be uh, constructing various uh, buildings in the middle of the grid that you own. You put your token down on top of it, but then there are outside forces that affect demand that go around on the various uh, rows and columns around the outside of that grid that will then pay you off for the various things that you make in the middle. Uh, now, mechanically, they're not identical between the two games, but let's now just focus on Mercado de Lisboa because the way it works is on your turn, you're just going to take one action from four different options. The first option is you could just take a money. And at the end of the game, the person with the most money wins. So 
<laughs> if you can't come up with anything else, you can just take a point and that's your turn. The second thing that you can do is you can actually place one of your stalls down onto the board and you have three of them in front of you at all times. Now there are I think four or five different types of goods in this game and they have, you know, like, like fish or uh, meats or grapes and you put those down onto the board, but then you have to pay for them. The amount of coins that you have to spend, which again are victory points is equal to the number of uh, the buildings that are in the row or the column where you put that new one down and you pay the higher amount. So that means if you put it into a row and you're the first one in the row, but in that column, there's another stall of anyone's color, then that's actually going to be two stalls. So you have to pay two because that's the more expensive of the two. So you are spending your victory points in order to place these out here on the board. And that leads me to the third thing that you can do, which is you can actually, I guess, fulfill demand by sending out various people to the rows and columns around the outside in order to satisfy demand. Now, the number of people that are on a tile is going to be uh, equal to the number of markets in that row or column that you put them next to. And the more people, the better, because you simply count up the number of faces on the tile and you multiply that by the number of that associated matching type of good that you have in that row or column where you put the person. So what that means is if you have a face tile with uh, two faces on it and they want fish and they also want grapes, well, if in that uh, row I have a fish market and a grape market, then each of those is worth two points because there are two people who want that. So even though they're two different types, I could still do that. So that's two plus two or four money that I then take because I put that token down. Now it doesn't cost money to actually place that token down. However, by putting that uh, demand token down, you might actually give your opponents points because you might have that grape and that fish market, but then an opponent might also have a grape market in that same row and they will also get paid coins even though it's not technically their turn. So you can actually get a decent amount of victory points if you plan this right when it's not your turn, which always feels good in like any game. <laughs> the fourth thing that you can do is you can actually place a restaurant down. Now the restaurants are these circular discs and you gain them whenever you cover them up with any other token and they hang out in front of you and they are a modifier for all of the adjacent buildings. So if we go back to that example where I have two faces over here, a fish and a, uh, a grape spot, if I then put the sushi restaurant next to the fish, adjacent, orthogonally adjacent, then that essentially adds one power to every single one of the fish markets that are adjacent to that sushi market, whether or not that's yours. So in this case, they, these two people want fish, that's two times two or four just for the fish. And then of course, there's still the wine over here, the one wine for the two. So now you got six points instead of the four points or coins uh, because you have that sushi market. So this game is definitely about trying to place your markets in the right places early so that you pay less victory points to put them down. And then you want to cash out as many points as you can by putting the different demand uh, tokens in uh, uh, alignment with it. There are four different uh, demand tokens that can be lined up with every single cart on the game. And of course, you want to place these restaurants out to help you more than they help your opponents because they are neutral. Now, at the end of the game, you lose a point for every restaurant you didn't place. So you want to be careful about how many of those you actually take into your hand. Uh, but that's essentially the game. I might have missed a thing or two here or there, but you're just going to keep playing until one of two conditions happens. The first is if there are just four empty spots in the middle of the grid, and the other is if there are just four empty spots with the demand spots all the way around the outside. So you're just going to keep playing. And once uh, the end game trigger is hit, um, I believe the game just ends immediately. I can't remember the specific of it, but then you just reveal how many uh, money you have and the person with the most wins. Uh, now, <laughs> going back to things I've said before, uh, I won this game by a pretty decent margin. Uh, so maybe I have some winner's bias here, but 
I thought this was a really sharp game. Like, talk about a super filler, because it's, um, again, took maybe about 25 minutes for uh, for new people. Well, one experienced person who taught it and two complete newbies. Uh, if I played this again at three players with three people who knew it, I could see it being more in the 20-minute range. But it is thinky, and it is uh, <laughs> uh, potentially punishing. Like, you can definitely do a thing and then be like, no, why did I do that? That was way better for someone else. And there are also many moments where you desperately want to place a certain person down, but somebody else takes a different person and puts it into the same spot because they'll score way better and now you just kind of lost out on that. So on every one of your turns, even though the options seem rather simple, there's a lot to think about and you can really put together some great combos. I think I kind of lucked into some really good combos with my restaurants and my uh, various market stalls and the way things worked out, I had an 18-point scoring turn at one point, and uh, yeah, I won by a, a relatively sizable amount, which felt good, but you know, that's just one play. It wouldn't surprise me if the next time I play, I come dead last because uh, things don't kind of accidentally work out in my favor so much. Uh, not that there's randomness in this game, there's essentially no randomness, but um, I think I just kind of did the right things without a whole lot of uh, thought behind it. So uh, I was really impressed by Mercado de Lisboa. This is a game I would definitely not mind having a copy of, although um, one of my closest friends does have a copy, so I don't have to worry about not being able to uh, play this one again. But it's just so sharp. It, it reminds me of uh, those uh, many games that are designed these days that are two-player only to try and be like a thinky Euro experience in about 30 minutes. But in order to pull that off, you have to have two players. If there's a third player, then maybe it's a 45-minute or even a 60-minute game. So they design it for just two players. Well, Mercado de Lisboa is a four-player game, but it still plays in about that uh, time frame. So um, it's much more likely to get played in the future. Uh, now, it's possible people aren't always going to be looking for a brain burner 20 to 25 minute uh, filler style game, but uh, I'm looking forward to playing this one more. I think mechanically it's ingenious. Uh, once again, it adopts the ideas from my favorite part of the big game, Lisboa, and lets them all just really shine in a simple to teach but complex game to play. And I just love seeing that. Uh, I think my soapbox lately, <laughs> in the last year or two, is just seeing Euro games that have just way too many rules and too many mechanics and too many uh, exceptions and bonus tokens and all that. And then here comes just a great example of what you can do when you don't have all those exceptions and all those superfluous rules and extra bonuses and everything. It's just a really honed, elegant design, and I'm super impressed with it. So yeah, I think that's going to wrap up my thoughts about Mercado de Lisboa. All right, that has brought me to the end of this impressions vlog. Uh, even though I only talked about three games, I think this was a very long one. Uh, I, I honestly did not go into this with a outline of what I wanted to say about any of these games. I actually never do. I just kind of turn the camera on and let my mouth go. And I hope that I was structured enough, especially about Anno. I think I talked about that one longer than I've talked about most games, but um, these games are, are, are great. Like I'm playing so many great games. And even though some of them that I might love, like Anno 1800 seems to maybe have some problems that I hope are not fatal, I'm still really enjoying playing them. And it's that time of year, you know, Spiel just kind of sort of happened and so many Euro games come out around then. So this is kind of my favorite time of the year for new releases to come out. And I'm happy to be enjoying so many of them that are showing up. Uh, I'm not sure when I'm going to be doing the next of these impressions vlogs. Uh, we are still working our way through that uh, uh, Rise of Queensdale campaign. Uh, but I have a couple of the games that I would really like to get played, like um, uh, New York Zoo. That one arrived recently. And Cafe, that one also arrived recently. Uh, I actually built a private mod for New York Zoo that plays up to four players. I know there's a Tabletopia version but I wanted to make my own uh, and I'm going to make a mod for cafe for us as well. So hopefully I can play those soon and actually cover those soon as well. But time will have to tell on that one. All right. I think that's going to bring this podcast to a close. Thanks for listening.